Hello and welcome to the Sala podcast. My name is Steph and today I'll be speaking with Bridget Curry, who is a South Australian artist working in sculpture, performance, drawing, writing, public art and installation. We found a quiet corner upstairs of the Ace Open Gallery and I want to acknowledge that we meet on the traditional lands of the Ghana people and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for finding time to come and chat with me today in your busy, busy August that you're having. Thanks, Steph. Um, before we dive into your recent projects, I'm just wondering if we can go back a bit and uh, have a bit of a background on how you came to be an artist. Okay. Well, um, I was just reflecting the other day that probably I was maybe one of the last class to go through the old Underdale campus of UniSA. So I had my art education there and I guess, yeah, we had amazing lecturers like John Barber, um, George Popperwell, um, Ian North, where we had fantastic lecturers who obviously have made a huge impact on me uh, as an artist. So I did my undergraduate study there and um, finished in 1999 <laughs> and um I ended up doing honours in 2001, so that was a long time ago now. It was 20 years. (laughs) Um, And really soon after graduating, I was lucky to get a car clue um, studio grant for – I actually had a studio here at the EAF at the time. Oh, wow. Uh, So – that was a really wonderful grants program that used to happen. I don't think it happens anymore, but – that year, Viv Miller, myself, um, and Sarah Waters all received um, those particular grants from Kakalu for a studio. And Viv and I, together with a group of people that included Louise Flaherty, Chris Flanagan, and Andrew Best, we started a artist-run space. So we were very, very young. <laughs> um, it seems now, looking back. But, of course, at the time we didn't think that. Um, We started a space called Downtown Art Space, which was in a Dodgem car rink on Hindley Street, which was the old downtown. So it was an amusement parlour. Amusement parlour, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Amusement (laughs) arcade and something. And we got this space for free. Um, At the time there were no artist-run spaces in Adelaide. Oh, wow. Uh, So we were the only one. And we ended up moving to premises sort of opposite the Grace Emily eventually but the gallery ran for around six years and we started with no funding whatsoever um, and was all just very uh, chaotic (laughs) and organic Um, but probably an amazing training for both sides of the equation being working in a gallery sector but also being an artist Mm. Um, so I'd say that is really a formative influence on my practice certainly and and my my ability to think of myself as an artist I guess and and to kind of plan for those things um I also studied uh a master's by research at UniSA as well so uh when did I finish that maybe 2000 and 
five we'll be able to google it i'm sure (laughs) (laughs) something like that yeah Uh, so that's my my educational background um and yeah i've always had a very multidisciplinary practice so i do think of myself as making sculpture but i have always particularly worked with printmaking as well and drawing writing and um, through my sister, who's a choreographer, Alison Curry, um, we have done some collaborative work together. Mm-hmm. So I think I have a I have a real appreciation for contemporary dance in particular, and this kind of which I feel like is very sculptural mm-hmm. um, as a medium, but um, some time based mediums as well that I work with. Yeah, um, I think that. I get more and more drawn back to books and making prints and drawings actually and that's a really interesting return. So that's been something that has been going on throughout my practice but definitely not the majority of my work. But um, there is a very beautiful publication coming out for this show at Ace Open um, that, yeah, it's a gorgeous riso printed book so we're talking about as an artist book and it's published through ace and person books and designed by tyrone ormsby who's done a fantastic job but that process has been so fun and i've just been really enjoying it so so yeah (laughs) something i think i'll might do more of in the future yeah absolutely i'll have to keep an eye out for that one Mm. for sure and that actually leads us really nicely into diving into Message from the Meadow, which um, so you were the recipient of Ace Open's inaugural Porter Street Commission. Um, So a fantastic opportunity to develop uh, work to exhibit in the Ace Open Gallery. And as we speak, it's installed downstairs and has had its opening, opened in late July and will run until, is it the 4th of September 2021? Yep. Wonderful. Um, So maybe just thinking about obviously I've gone and seen the work and, and and thinking about the show as it's installed, but just to hark back a little bit to the development of that work, that work would have been developed in a health crisis during the pandemic. Mm. Did the did that play a role in, in the development or the approach that you took to making that work? Yeah, I think in a couple of ways. Obviously there was obstacles because of the situation, mm. um, but definitely... I think my approach has been even more grounded in kind of bodily experience than it may normally have been because I have felt probably as everyone has the sort of craving to be in a physical space and craving to be in a space that isn't Zoom, I guess. (laughs) So I feel like everything got reduced to being within a screen and it's just obviously not enough you know and there has been this tendency to think you know beyond 2000 kind of mentality of being like yeah in the future everything will be online and it'll all be in computers and we won't need physical stuff and it's just sort of so bizarre that we could even think that about ourselves because we're so such a social species of animal and we need physical stuff and we need um I heard an amazing musician talking about live performance and how he missed live performance 
And I think it would be worse if you're a performer than a visual artist. But um, he was saying he missed exchanging molecules in the room. Oh, and, you know, sentiment. Yeah. it's so true. You just crave physical presence. And developing this work has definitely, I think it's kind of pushed me to go in a really, into a really embodied space with the work. So it's very tactile in the gallery. There are a lot of textures. There are a lot of things you can sit on or touch, as well as um, sculptural elements and, and some felt works with felt and printmaking. So there are lots of um, sound works in the show as well, which I feel like are also very embodied. Um, there's elements of, yeah, ASMR sound, but also spoken word pieces that are very intimate. And this kind of physical presence and intimacy, I think, has become even more pronounced in Message to the Meadow. Um, yeah, so it's almost a reaction to COVID times, mm. I think. Um, but it was definitely, yeah, some of the work has been cast by a Meridian sculpture in Melbourne and um, the bronze works. And that was really difficult because Melbourne was in lockdown and then stuff kept, kept happening like, oh, the freight's on its way. Oh, hang on, the border shut. Oh. Um, <laughs> it was just, yeah, there was, there was difficulties that were involved with that. But for me, mainly I'm in my studio, so actually producing stuff I'm like yeah you know I'm beavering away in there so <laughs> it's not really um yeah it, it doesn't touch me in in such a profound way as someone who's traveling a lot mm. but definitely in terms of a kind of reaction to the the environment this show definitely responds to that by yeah I think exploring a very embodied physicality mm. and I think it's nice having spent time in those spaces, all of us, you know, resisting the Zoom space and, <laughs> and all of those things that your show, it's not just inviting people to witness something, the, the fact that you can lie on something and, you know, mm. get really close to these uh, very, what would that feel like to touch and, and have these sounds in your ear, you know, I encourage everyone to go and ask for the headsets at the front desk and spend that time um, to be enveloped in those curtains to watch that work that we're not just asked to witness something. It's like, no, come and have this experience. Mm. And I think that's just underscored in such a profound way post, you yes. know, lockdowns and pandemics. So it's, yeah, it's so interesting, isn't yeah. it? And I better, uh, just in case anyone's listening that hasn't been to the show or, or read about it um, and, you know, your practice more generally, uh, I like that it's described as an effort to materialise things that are invisible, which... Yeah, it sounds really simple, but it's it's quite something to wrap your head around and that can be beliefs and, and life forces and, and, yeah, almost things that are almost hard to describe as well. Mm. Um, my first experience with your work was actually at the outcome of your Sala Artist Residency at Flinders Medical Centre, which was that 2018? Yes, yeah, cool, good. My memory's serving me well. <laughs> <laughs> and that was facilitated by the wonderful team at Arts and Health at FMC. Yes. Uh, and you, I hope I've got this right, you worked with the patients in the pain clinic to materialise their pain into these sort of objects. So, mm. yeah, I'm kind of looking at, you know, yes, you've done this before. You know, you are working with the invisible mm. across these different, um, in different ways. And, yeah, I guess my question is 
How do you approach that research of your work in becoming familiar with the invisible thing that you want to portray or materialize? Do you, are you just a naturally very observant person or do you have to cultivate a sort of purposeful focus when you're doing that kind of research? Mm, I, I do think I am naturally pretty observant um, and pretty sensitive to both yeah physical objects and kind of emotional states but the the residency at Flinders Medical Centre I did a lot of listening so I was trying to find people that would be willing to talk to me it's not everyone's willing to talk about a very personal thing of of pain Um, and the people that I did find to talk to me they were very generous in sharing um, what was going on for them and um, the sort of seed of this research came from the fact that I have get migraines and my mother gets very severe migraines so we both have migraines are very weird because you get all kinds we can get all kinds of visual vision disturbances and they're very individual to each person but for me I have this really clear picture of what the pain is like on my head right. um so it's kind of like if I was to describe it in a word of words I would say it's kind of like a stripe that goes from the back of my neck right over my head and then covering my left eye yeah and it just feels almost like a physical thing like it just it's so um yeah it almost feels like you could touch it wow yeah. and my mum has a very similar experience um and she also experiences a lot of um she kind of goes blind when she has a migraine wow really intense there's yeah they're very very strange sensory things um so the the sort of seed of the research was that and then yeah speaking to people in hospital some people the people that I ended up speaking to the most had chronic pain conditions so they were just living their lives with fairly severe pain Mm. and if you think about living with something just day-to-day it's just such a massive presence in your life um most people yeah can kind of describe it like it's a real physical presence for them Mm. but obviously invisible to someone else and this overwhelming presence I felt like to be able to convey that to someone else through an object or a drawing would be a really interesting thing to do as an artist. And um, the the main yeah, so the main research I did was just speaking to people and writing down their descriptions and then making drawings. I, I could definitely have more time, <laughs> um, yeah. more 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 time. To uh, didn't have. In the end, I didn't have so much time to make the work. Um, I just spent the time researching with people. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, there was just incredible descriptions. One woman said she just feels like her whole body's covered in black smoke. Wow, that's such a, a vivid mm. way of describing that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, you know, let's, other people have really ideas about color mm. um of rippling movements um and they, they, they're very vivid they're yeah. very vivid descriptions but it's just such a 
amazing thought that one person's internal reality is so profoundly impacted by something that cannot be seen by Mm. someone else. And, yeah, these are people that they don't look physically different um, to you or I. You know, they're just – it's just kind of like it's hidden. It's a hidden thing Mm. and it – their, their world is so profoundly different to, to to someone else's experience that um, yeah, and you can I mean of course you can think about that more broadly and say well of course everyone's experience all the time is <laughs> is different to to everyone else's and you never really know what's going mm. on inside. That's true. Well, I guess that's what makes that role so interesting that you can be mm. that conduit between it becoming palpable to someone else you know drawing on that inherent understanding of someone who's lived that and yeah can describe Mm. that pain is just I I remember feeling really struck by the role that you could play in that process and Mm. that communicating that with a visual language as opposed to just having to describe it and there's something about coming up to an object that it exists in physical space and it does kind of confront you and Mm. challenge you so that's my first encounter with your work so I did want to bring that up yeah (laughs) thanks Deb now coming back to a message from the meadow I do actually find it really difficult to discuss the work in the sense that, yeah, it occupies a space that's more about experience and, you know, grounding oneself through the different senses than than perhaps I can find words to say. Um, although I have enjoyed uh, reading about the work uh, to find those <laughs> those words. So, um, you know, the combined efforts of the different aspects of the show have been described as actually aiming to short-circuit the logical mind and, um, you know, the moving image work described as being about pre-language encounters. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah. Um, so there's this idea in um, Buddhism of a koan, so a problem or a conundrum. Uh, is I guess conundrum is a nice word for it. That doesn't have an answer. So... Uh-huh. You know, the one that everyone knows is the sound of one hand clapping, which is not a very good example, let's just say. Um, But it might be just the idea of a question that doesn't have an answer. So it's an invitation to kind of confound your mind. And I often think of abstract sculptures or my sculptures as being ways that that might be a physical thing so they resist interpretation in the Mm. same way um they don't have an easy answer they invite i hope they invite contemplation so they invite you to kind of stop and yeah let your brain just kind of go (laughs) i don't know what that is and that doesn't matter because I think at the moment in our cultural moment there's a great tendency for things to be closed off more than being open. So things that 
don't have an easy answer or a kind of soundbite or a, um, a quickly understood meaning often are just like left. Mm. Um, I think it's really, really important to go into that space. So go into spaces where you, you don't know. Mm. Um, yeah. And people, you know, people like narratives, they like facts, they like a little story to tell them what to think. Yeah. And, uh, I think it's, yeah, in the case of visual art, like that's not an easy fit for visual art. And I think it's really important that visual art doesn't do that mm. and that visual art is open to interpretation. Visual art is difficult and mute and um, resistant. Mm. I don't mean difficult as in like... Well, challenging rather than soothing too much, I guess, you know. Um, yeah, I, I don't necessarily mean like oh, violent and disturbing no. or something. Um, I guess. But I think resist is the, is the nice word there, mm. too. You know, it's not easily categorised and it's not, you know, yeah. forgettably. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, again, we're struggling with the words. <laughs> <laughs> but we do have, you know, there's there's so much spectacle in our society and, you know, exhibitions that are made for Instagram essentially and I really hate going into museums when this this has happened I find it it kind of if things are over interpreted in a museum setting I'm just like just show me the object I don't want I don't care about your touch screens (laughs) (laughs) just show me the thing you know and I worry that now people were so acclimatized to all of that other stuff that they can't look at the object and find meaning in it. Mm. Um, which I, it's, it's a skill to be learned, yeah. I, I think. And, you know, some people are really sensitive to it. I'm, I'm very sensitive to it. Some people aren't. But I think it's, um, yeah, artists should definitely actively resist that urge like that impulse to over interpret things mm, um overly lead or explain yeah. yeah absolutely and and overly produce a kind of experience where you kind of like just step back just yeah. let people be and yeah give your audience a bit of um credit i guess as yeah well. absolutely well yeah totally i i absolutely believe you know Appreciation of art is so incredibly democratic. You might meet somebody who you're like, they haven't been to university. They might be a carpenter or something. They have an incredible physical spatial sense, like so developed and so nuanced and a massive appreciation for sculpture Mm. and or like really – yeah, really amazing things to say. You can can always be blown away, I think. Um, So – yeah, there's a there's a great tendency to not challenge the audience, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think that just needs to be dialed back a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that that's, yeah, so definitely um, the aim of providing a space in the show where there's there's just space and time for people to be there with those things mm-hmm. in that space. But having said that, I also have tried to make there a generosity. There's a generosity in the exhibition. So 
you can lie down on the, the chaise long, you can sit in the film space and it's warm and it's comfortable and it's very inviting to be in there. There's lots of different textures. And in a way, the audio works, the intimacy of the audio works as well, it really allows a way in to the exhibition. So mm. I haven't, I, I feel like I'm trying to open up other avenues that are generous to people to spend time there and not feel threatened or, mm. you know, find ways in, but that don't close off yeah. meaning. Mm. That's a very delicate thing to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well done. Yeah, and I do um, recommend that people get in there before uh, the show closes and put time aside. Yeah, I think you need around 50 minutes. Yeah. The The audio pieces are 25 minutes as a group and the film is 15. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's right that, that there are different entry points Mm. across the different materials the different (laughs) positions you can be in you know Mm. horizontal sitting watching or walking around that yeah I hope that there's you Mm. know a different entry point for everybody um the other thing I wanted to ask was following on from (laughs) my struggle to put this into words (laughs) are there any um practices in your life that actually sit outside of the visual arts and you know the whole lexicon that comes with that you know we're talking about the way that a carpenter might have that incredible Mm. uh spatial sense and appreciation for sculpture is there anything outside of that uh visual arts world that has built on your ability to navigate your work you know such as a practice of mindfulness or meditation or even um we've talked about ASMR, which is autonomous sensory meridian response. Not everyone gets the physical mm. uh, like neck tingling to that. Is there anything else in that realm that plays in? I have been, I guess, doing yoga for a really long time now. So I, you know, I'm not, I'm in no way guru status, <laughs> but I do have a yoga practice and I do have a meditation practice as well. Part of the public events for the show um, on the 21st and 28th of August, we do have a guided meditation in the gallery and I have been experimenting with writing in that space. So I think it's really interesting that we all, nowadays almost everyone goes to some kind of yoga or mindfulness thing, you know, Um, and the... The language that's used is its own world in a way and it's really interesting. It's almost like a vernacular poetry that's not really interrogated by you know, writers. And um, I've been interested in writing in that space. So it's a big experiment, the guided meditations, but we will be sitting in the gallery space, um, we'll be touching some of the objects and then... Yeah, I've written this guided meditation that we'll, um, I'll be speaking and we'll, tr- we'll try and meditate in the gallery, which I think would be a fantastic way to experience art. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really hope it works. It is an experiment. People have been pretty keen to come, so I'm not sure if there's still spots, but um, you can have a look on the ACE website and try and book in. Yeah, uh, the ASMR thing, I was at a public program at ACE for um, 
Keg D'Souza and Lucien Alperstein's Salt Banquet. And I was t- sitting next to Vivian, who used to work for ACE, and she was talking about this thing called ASMR. And I was like, what is that? You need to tell me more about that. Oh my gosh. And um, then I went down this massive rabbit hole in the internet, which is there are just millions of videos of people doing things like tapping a foam roller or folding towels or brushing their hair. And the entire goal of all these videos is to, yeah, induce a kind of strange sensory response in the viewer. And for me, that's always like a sort of weird tingling on my head or my neck. Um, That has always happened to me my whole life. And I don't know if people remember at school, you had all sorts of funny games that you would do, particularly girls. I don't think maybe not boys, Um, (laughs) but yeah, lots of like squeezing the neck or touching certain spots on your back. Uh, And that, that was the goal. Um, So that was to induce the same response. Yeah. But we didn't have a language or a name for it then. No, but it was just kind of like this game you did. And I think one of them is the concentrate game, if you remember. I don't know if you did that at school. I didn't do yeah. that one. What was that yeah. one? So that was just, you would say concentrate, concentrate. And then this whole sort of like choreographed motions oh, that wow. people would do. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's absolutely, that's what it is, the <laughs> ASMR. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like, oh, yeah, school kids kind of naturally have this thing. They're like, oh, yeah, we can make this happen. Yeah. It's a bit magic then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but adults do it too through this bizarre corner of YouTube. So there are some sounds in the soundtrack to the film that play with those those ideas. It's 15 minutes, so that's nothing in terms of an ASMR video, which sometimes go for 12 hours. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> you know, that... It's sort of a different kind of meditation, I guess. But I am very interested in in those noises and actually the whole desire to create this in the body, mm-hmm. this response in the body. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting that it's giant and a weird subculture. But, yeah, really curious. Mm. So, Rabbit hole is definitely a good word for <laughs> that. I'll admit that I also have experienced I get neck tingles mm. and got it all through school. And yeah. I, I actually found my way to ASMR because I was on hold to Optus once for a really long time and the person on the other side had a really calming oh, wow. voice. And I YouTubed someone speaking quietly and that's how I found the, the rabbit hole of, of ASMR. So. I wonder if Optus knew. <laughs> Never told anyone from Optus specifically, but, but maybe uh, someone there was like, you know how we can calm down people on hold. For sure, we've got to. She deserved a raise, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, it's quite funny, and that whole, um, you know, I think the the term ASMR is people mm. are starting to know what it is, and um, yeah, it was just really lovely too because I don't know how much of that corner of of it's mostly youtube where i think Mm. people access it i don't know how many of those i mean they call themselves asmr artists Mm. but how many um you know practicing visual artists in more gallery spaces are actually doting on that kind of knowledge no idea yeah i think it's really interesting and isn't it's also really interesting the gendered nature of asmr Mm. because i feel like most of the people that make it are women Mm. and there's certainly something about a quiet 
female voice that is almost universal to the you know medium and then yeah there's sort of people doing things like taking off their makeup or um, brushing their hair yeah like really kind of personal care Mm. And that close personal attention when it's role played on someone else. Mm. Yeah, it's it's Mm. really interesting, isn't Mm. it? And I think it is super gendered and I'm just wondering, then is the audience for this women or men or both or Mm. is it just it doesn't matter? Mm. Like it's sort of the the caring woman persona is just pan (laughs) asmr it's just very curious it's um and i wonder if it will change mm, and yeah absolutely i mean some of the the some of the really interesting um asmr people that there's this fantastic guy that did the foam roller tapping and he was just amazing but yeah he was kind of like a quite a burly man and he struck me as being very unusual in you know the, mm, in the that content space. in mm. that space and that was interesting mm-hmm. yeah but it is it's I sometimes am like oh it's sort of yeah it feels like very William Gibson or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah <I love> <laughs> from the meadow the meadow is sort of presented as this concept but I I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more about what that Mm. represents yeah so I became very interested in meadows during a residency in Lithuania in 2016 at a really wonderful institution called Rupert and it's um in an incredibly beautiful timber contemporary architecture building in the outskirts of Vilnius. So it's got forest on one side and a river. And then as you kind of walk out of the building, this beautiful meadow space. So it's quite wild, the landscape around there. Yeah. I'm just laughing because this sounds like a guided meditation. Like there's a river and a stream and a forest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a pretty magical place. Um, like uh, and I became very interested in this meadow space. And I was just really interested in the democratic nature of it so it's no one plant is dominating um and it's this very symbiotic ecosystem and also very horizontal so there's no you know things that are like massively taller than other things so it felt very like a very beautiful metaphor for a structure that I might like to explore with my work and I've always been very interested in multiple perspectives in in my work so I love the thought of having a macro perspective where the whole exhibition is one work Mm. yet it's also lots of lots of tiny details um and so message from the meadow the show here is very much like that it's um 
one large installation, but within that there's so many elements and they're all existing in some kind of symbiosis. Um, I also think the grasslands in Australia are yeah, something that's really influenced that and I'm very interested in the Adelaide Plains grassland ecology, which was incredibly rich before colonisation. So we had like upwards of 100 species of plants in all the grasslands. Yeah. And most of which are unfortunately, yeah, pretty endangered. So there was just hundreds and hundreds of different types of orchid mm. and lilies and, and, and various kind of yeah, kind of tuberous roots that were eaten as well by the Ghana people. So there is this kind of ghost landscape of that in Adelaide that mm. it's it's really interesting to think about. Um, so, yeah, the meadow, yeah, someone said to me, there's no grass in the, <laughs> in the show. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, there isn't. <laughs> but there is a kind of structure. And really one of the problems that I set myself in making this show was um, it's a huge gallery. Mm. It's massive. It and every time you go in there when you know you have a show, you're like, oh, God, it's so big. <laughs> what am I going to do? Um, so it's very daunting as an artist to have a solo show in there. Uh, but the problem was solved through the idea of making uh, a kind of habitat for the small sculptures. Um so the furniture elements in the show, which are made by Dean Topfer uh, of Mixed Goods Studios, he collaborated, collaborated with me to make this furniture that kind of exists to, yeah, form an ecosystem for the smaller works to sit within, I guess. And, yeah, that was the – in this instance, that was the solution to the problem um, of, of how to show these small sculptures in this massive – space um yeah so they they sort of have a structure that is akin to a meadow yeah well, that's good and you couldn't have you know field filled that gallery because then you lose the openness of the meadow so yeah yeah no it all makes sense yeah um I also really wanted to have quite a lot of light in the gallery mm. so yeah it's it it is quite a sparse um, sparse is the wrong word because there's so many things in there. There's breathing room. Mm, yeah, breathing room's good. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And uh, and if you're asking people to or allowing people to have you know these different entry points with these different items, yeah, you don't want too much competing at once mm. because it is very sensory. Mm. Um, so no, I think job well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think I'm running out of words to <laughs> reiterate the show and I definitely encourage people to get in and see it because that is the whole reason that we're here. Uh, and you mentioned that there was a finissage event as well. Yes, so on the 4th of September will be the last day of the show and we're also doing a launch of the publication on that date. I think we'll start it, might go from 2 to 4 that day, but, yeah, that will be the final day of the show. So Great. That's excellent. And uh, if anyone wants to follow along with your next steps, where's the best places to? I do have a website, which is just BridgetCurry.com and an Instagram, which is at Bridget underscore Curry. <laughs> yeah. 
Great. Love it. Well, um, thank you so much for for divulging all of the, the context and backstory to your work and, and, you know, work that represents a long lead up to that, I think, as well. So everyone get in there and, and soak it up. And uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing what you do next. Thanks, Steph. 